If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in a couple different places, but mostly at least at first in Galatians chapter 3. And so if again you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. We, about three-fourths of the year, will go through books of the Bible. uh, But in between, uh, we want to cover certain topics and topical series. And so uh, we want to start off in between uh, right now Psalms and before we hit into Philippians um, and go over a a, a series on idols, uh, the things that we replace what should be Christ in our hearts and our lives as first priority, as king who rules and reigns with other items that tend to rule and reign. Um, Purpose of the series, as I had shared last week, is not to kind of stir up controversy, but if anything, to shatter idols to prevent later conflict, division, or idolatrous thinking and living. And so to start off, before we talk about this idol of identity, I want to share a few things that you need to know, kind of like a framework on idolatry. In fact, I'll quickly go through this every single message in the next five weeks. So here's some truths about idolatry before we hit this topic of identity. First off, we need to know this. We all Every single one of us, we all worship something, and that something should be God. We were created to worship. You may have someone in this room that does not believe in God, a maybe professing atheist, and say, I do not worship anything, and it is not true. You worship something because you were created to worship. Often that goes into whatever we are spending our most time, energy, resources, thoughts, our heart and affections on. That is what you most likely worship. We all worship something, and it should be God. Sometimes that's self, sometimes that's other things. But just like John Calvin once quoted in his Institutes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It just continues to go after other things in place of Jesus. It's why, as we see in Exodus 20 and and the Ten Commandments in the very first, uh, that we are to worship God and God alone. And although, as we often read, at least in scriptures, you see people worshiping and they're literal physical objects like this. Well, not like this. This is from a felt board, probably from this church back in the 70s which our student and media minister, whose mom uh, is a children minister in Bowling Green, he just, he saw this, and you should have seen, you would have thought he found gold, literally. He was like, I have so many great memories of felt boards and these type of things. But they would worship like a literal physical object like that. And that's why some people are like, I don't worship idols. I don't have a closet in my room where I have a shrine of the latest celebrity. And and I'm going, I don't worship idols. No. An idol doesn't have to be an object, a thing. It can be an ideology. It can be yourself. It can be another person. It can be a place. It's anything that takes the place of God and your heart and your adoration and your living and your thinking. Idolatry is the act of worshiping that image instead of or alongside of the one and true living God. Now, we are often blind to what our false idols are. We often don't see, even if others see, wow, they're putting a lot of time, energy into those things. Wow, their life seems revolved around those things. Where in our heart of hearts, in our thinking, we're often blind to those things. Three, we need to differentiate. 
between surface and root idols. And what I mean when I say that is there are certain idols that are more surface level where under that idol there is a larger reason why you're putting that thing before the Lord yourself. You'll hear more about that in first week of community groups as we pass out some material to help differentiate between those surface and root or deep idols. Fourth, idols must be uprooted, repented of, and destroyed from within our hearts. Again, it is often in our hearts where we're adoring, worshiping, living for, thinking about those things taking the place of Christ. And therefore, that needs to be uprooted from our heart, repented of, which is turning the other way, looking at it the same way that God looks at it, and ultimately shattered and destroyed. Fifth, only Jesus can take the rightful place of a false idol. Sadly, often when we repent or shatter one idol, it goes into a next. Jesus is the only one that can fulfill, answer such longings, be the Savior, that these functional saviors deceitfully take the place in our hearts and lives. He's the only one that can take that place. Last of all, as you'll hear each week in this series, we'll end on certain rhythms and routines that we need to set up to not continue to let those idols back in. There are certain rhythms and routines that will help us keep Christ at center instead of what we were falsely living for. So with that being said, our first idol of the heart and the culture that we're going to address today is identity. Identity. Few definitions of identity. First from the APA Dictionary of Psychology. Identity is an individual sense of self-defined by a set of physical, psychological, and interpersonal characteristics that is not wholly shared with any other person and a range of affiliations that can be, for example, ethnicity or social roles. They say in the Dictionary of Psychology, identity involves a sense of continuity or the feeling that one is the same person today that one was yesterday or last year. Therefore, it's deep, even despite physical or other changes. And it says in that definition, such a sense is derived from one body's sensations or one's body's image and the feeling that one's memories, goals, values, expectations, and beliefs belong to the self. Now, that's the long kind of big psychology definition. Here is the sociology definition. The sociology definition is this. Identity involves knowing who we are knowing who others are, them knowing who we are, and us knowing who they think we are, and so on. Now, from that definition, as you can see, identity can get real complicated, right? So, I often, and we've said this in the past, I've often broken it down to this. Often, our identity will boil down to these several things. It's who you say, I am, and what I do, often our identity can be found in our job, in the school that we go to, and what you do, maybe that's for a living, or I am what I own. 
That often can turn into materialism. That often can turn into, okay, this is the stuff I have, therefore this is my identity in these things. Therefore, I'm taking all these Instagram pictures of all these things and I want people to know this is what I am. This is my identity. Or it's I am what I've done. You have a lot of people that cannot give up or get past some certain things that they've done in their past. And so identity is in maybe some deep shame that's going on or in what I've done. And I take great pride in this accomplishment. It's what I've done and this is who I am. This is what I should be known for. This is my legacy. And pride will often come out of that. Or I am what I desire. I am like an animal almost. What I love. What I desire. What I lust after maybe. I am and I can't help to be what I can't control in my desires. Or I am who I know or love. Often our identity is rooted or found in certain relationships. Who I know, who I love. My identity before all other identities is as a husband or as a father, which is a good thing, but as mentioned, can become a God thing. I want to be known, before even being a Christian, as a mom, as a good mom, as a good friend, as a sibling. Or I am what I come from. I am my background, the certain traditions, my ethnicity. This is often, this list right here, what we believe our identity is. And it gets even more complicated when we unite with others in that identity or find community with others in those things. When you can say, oh, because of this, they get me. I finally have my people. This shared identity traits that we either bond over or I thought no one truly understood what this feels like. This desire I have. Oh, they understand this desire too. Oh, I found my identity in my group identity. I can identify with them. And please believe me, I completely understand the power of that. And it's even there for a purpose, which we'll talk about later. But it doesn't make it right doesn't make it your true identity. It's also why we are constantly, and when I say constantly, I mean constantly unsettled in our identity and searching with it. One year you may say, my identity is this, and then a year or two later, uh, it's more of this. And we saw that, for example, with celebrity Demi Lovato this past week when she changed her pronouns and everybody's like, can you do that? What, what happened there? And she had to give a reason for that. And that's no different than a Teen Vogue interview with Miley Cyrus three years ago where she shared she had an identity crisis going from a Disney star to what she would call a proud sexual being. And she even admitted in that interview, I guess that's what I'm still doing, trying on identities and seeing what 
fits. I'm sorry. But how exhausting does that sound? Further proof of this came from an Instagram post this past May of another former Disney star celebrity of the Descendants fame. She came out as bisexual in 2020, and the lead actress in that show and series, Cameron Dove, in doing so, realized LGBTQ plus had quite loudly and proudly identified her as one of theirs, and which she gladly embraced, but then admits in this May Instagram post how she has a constant struggle in what she shared in emotions, in her inner self, these are her words, her outer self, and how she perceives herself in comparison to others. It admits in this post she has no idea what she's feeling, where she's going, and that more days than not she doesn't feel like she even has an identity. Again, how tiring, exhausting, and unfulfilling does that sound? I'm not even trying to judge. I've shared with you all in the past how easily we all and I have switched identities. I remember being in middle school, I wanted to be known as this, and then high school, be known as this, and by the time I got in college, I wanted this to be my identity. You see, even Christians on social media wanting to get followers followers from identities and, and certain kind of topics and certain kind of things and trends that are going around. Oh, I'm the biblical manhood, womanhood guy. Now I'm the anti-woke guy. Now I'm the anti-SBC guy. You see these identities that they're trying to get known for and platform in certain ways. How exhausting is that? Because in the end, certain identities that are not rooted in Christ, false identities don't answer or fulfill who you were truly created to be. No matter how you feel, how others perceive you, how you perceive yourself, where you come from, they're all not how God ultimately views you and how you should view yourself when they replace what our true identity needs to be. With that said, let's read Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. God's word from the Apostle Paul, written to the church of Galatia, and given to us through the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts and lives. God's word says this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female and female 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Starting off with verses 23 and 24, we see this. Before the opportunity for us to have saving faith in Jesus, we see and read here that we were under captive, as it says, of the law. The law we were captive under served us in two ways. God's law served as a bedrock of guiding ideals to help the people of God, both then and now, live in such a way as to love God and love neighbor. And that sounds great, and it is great, as it shows us a picture of God's holiness and his standard for a relationship and perfect life with him. But it also revealed how sinful we truly are and how we can't truly obey that law no matter how hard we try. Which is why he uses these words, we are held captive under it or imprisoned to it. Now, as bad as this sounds, and it is bad because it's impossible, that sin is what separates us from a holy God that we were created for and to be, a relation, to be in a relationship with. And so this right here is a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. But if you agree with this, at least you are agreeing to your true identity before receiving Jesus, which is your identity as a sinner. The law helps reveal this to us. I cannot meet the standards of a loving yet perfect holy God. Law is like the first commandment that we shall have no other gods before the one true God. That beyond these identities, we are sinners falling short of the glory of God and who we were truly created to be until, look at the end of verse 23, God reveals a saving faith in, verse 24, Jesus Christ. Until where we are viewed and made righteous and justification through that saving faith in Him, Jesus who took that sin and its consequence of death upon himself on the cross and defeated it by rising from the grave. Then in verse 25 here, it says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For those who repented of that sin and had saving faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you out of his love to free you from your sin and the cross and resurrection, you are no longer under the condemnation of the law. But not only are you freed and saved, as verse 23 and 25 reveals, but you were baptized into new life as you, verse 27 says, put on Christ. Because now he is your world. He should be your identity. But as verse 26 says, you have a few new true identities within him. There's more than this that's described in verse 26, but the beautiful needed identity mentioned here is when you put on Christ, when you received him as your Lord and Savior, you become a child of God. 
Read and look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Where before our rightful identity was one of a sinner, following false identities of the world, creating entire lives around them, but then left disappointed by them, we are now through faith in Christ chosen by God to become his beloved adopted children to now be cherished, protected, provided for, and adored by him. A good, perfect, heavenly father. Now we're going to get back to this very, very important identity that we receive in Christ, being a child of God, amongst some other very beautiful Absolutely amazing identities that we receive in Christ. But one of the main reasons we are studying this specific passage of Scripture on this topic this morning is because of the next verse. Read with me again verse 28. It is so very important dealing with the current culture of false identities and our very own struggles and blindness in our heart to such idols. Get this. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul lists identities that they had at this time in 48 AD. Identities such as Jews, those who believe, knew, are chosen by God, the apple of his eye, given these commands to live for him, with him, and he lived different in these ways. Or Greeks, who followed philosophy and, and some pagan worship. Or slaves, and their identity of I work or bemoaned by these people. Or freed men and freed women. For now my identity where it was so rooted in being owned or in that work, now my identity is free. We're in male. We're in female, which is a big topic for today. Now get how almost all of these identities are not necessarily sinful. One, of course, would point out slavery, but as we've explained in the past, before, when getting to other passages of Scripture dealing with slavery, this was not the horrific, evil, sinful, transatlantic slavery that we had in America, but more of a profession, but that still did have misuse, abuse, and sin involved. But as both historical study and other Scriptures, like the book of Philemon, reveals, it was not rooted out of prejudice, kidnapping, hate, and a desolation of Imago Day, but instead in this time and culture, more of a boss and live-in employee. So most of these identities are not necessarily sinful. Of course, there are many today that would also say that the born identity of male is pure sin and evil as well, but we won't go there. Instead, we should really see these are not sinful identities like most of us in the world would agree on. Like if somebody had the identity of a thief, that's not a good identity that you want to like brag about, right? Or a liar, a racist, 
a murderer, an animal abuser, a tyrant, people who like country music. Those are bad identities right there with my bias, Lord. Those are agreed upon, sinful identities. But these identities that Paul mentions, they deal with their nationality or their ethnicity, their profession, their change of socioeconomic status, their gender. These are identities that, again, we have today. Again, they're not bad. White, black, Latino, teachers, pharmacists, students, bosses, employees, husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, sons, daughters, identities that we can be proud of. Certain Roles that we can celebrate and the responsibilities in them. Praise certain things about them. But if you are a professing Christian, not because you were born to a Christian family or you prayed a prayer you had no idea you were praying when you are younger or got baptized just following other people who did it. But if you're truly in Christ, as it says here, put on Christ, heard the gospel message and recognize that beyond all other identities, you are a sinner in need of Jesus as a savior and you put him on, you repented of your sin, you gave your heart, your life to Jesus as your savior. You put him on, believing that he died on the cross for your sin, rose from the grave and had the power to forgive, save, give you that new life. Because in your heart of hearts you said, I'm that sinner and I need you as that savior. And if you are in Christ because you did that, and you know now how the Holy Spirit has given you a new heart, new affections, a worldview that's for his eternal kingdom, you are now not those identities over your main identity in Jesus Christ. You're neither white or black you're neither top of the food chain boss or low-level employee. You're neither mom, dad, wife, husband, single, sibling over your top identity as beloved child of God and Jesus Christ. This church is your true identity to be in Christ as a Christian. And listen, so often, with the false identities that we are deceived in, we don't think they are wrong or that we're in sin. But one of those sins is turning those identities into idols. And with the framework of idolatry that we shared from the beginning in mind, we are often blind to it in our very own hearts. But let's just be honest. We and others, and especially others, can be blind to the cultural idols of today. Even some of the most controversial issues of politics and identity has its root in idolatry. Some of those cultural voices of today, for example, concerning homosexuality and gender identity. We did a summer study over this book, but I do want to quote from it. Carl Truman in his book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution, said this, we now live at a time when the very issue of identity is an unstable, volatile, highly contentious, and even unprecedented manner. That in the past, at least the past of the last few hundred years in the West, 
there had been sufficient cultural and institutional continuity over time to offer some stable framework for each person to find their identity in something that offered stability. Today, the self is entirely plastic, and the external world right down to our bodies is liquid, something that offer no firm ground upon which to build an identity. We have everything, especially as the West in our culture. We have everything, not being a third world country, and yet our anxiety, depression, and mental state is an all-time low. This also helps to explain the power of newly emerging identities such as those offered by LGBTQ plus in the, their movement. In a world where old identities are implausible and where people still wish to belong, the most powerful narratives and the strongest communities can offer a sense of belonging and security that all human beings crave. The dominant narratives pushed by the cultural elites press us to think of human selfhood not simply in terms of expressive individualism, but specifically in terms of sexual identity. And they also encourage us to seek or to see sexual fulfillment as a core component of a happy and fulfilled life. And church, as one who served in student ministry for a long, long time, dealing with a lot of this gender, especially in homosexuality, I've, I've come to realize so much of that is rooted, as I've mentioned so often before, we'll continue two things. Do you believe what the Bible has to say? Is it truly your authority in dictating what is sin, what is not, how we are to live? are we to seek, find our identity in, but that's the second thing, authority of scripture, but also identity, identity, is it in Christ, over what you commune over, and over what you desire, and I'm not even denying the desires, I'm saying are you rooted in those, or are you rooted in Christ, and what you believe about God's word? When saying that, I can't but help to think about Jesus' temptation with Satan in the wilderness. Two of the three times that he was tempted was a physical and emotional need in the desert. Satan tempted Jesus, starting off by saying, if you are the Son of God, you'd believe or do this, as you need help with this, as you desire this right now. One of the things we learned from what Satan was trying to do is that you are not what you just desire in times of temptation and wants and needs. That we are to know who we are in Christ before we address temptation and misappropriated identity. Satan always starts off by making us forget and attacking our identity like he did with Satan. I mean like he did with Jesus in the wilderness. And that if we are children of God adopted into his family, we are ultimately protected by our heavenly father with a great inheritance. We're sent out as missionaries, representing him as salt and light. We are to not forget who we are, what we are, but it is important for us to know we are not what you desire. The world feeds into that lie that your heart and flesh begins to feed you. Oh, I have the desires of this person, of the same sex, even of opposite sex, or these confusing desires that doesn't fit my body. All of a sudden, you believe it defines you and what you want. But all of a sudden, in ways, you're a consumer in the advertising world defined by not only what you desire, but then the culture and world will market it. 
If you want to drink, you're a drunk. If you want to have sex, well, that's what your animalistic need is. You must be true to yourself. If you have same-sex attraction, your identity now, therefore, is gay in the appropriate pronouns. It's not true. Like Jesus said, we don't live by bread alone. You are not what you want or have a desire in if you're in Christ. That's why people, again, with same-sex attractions or even addicts, are deceived in thinking that is my identity. No, it is not in Christ. You're not what you want, but instead defined by the word of God and what he says about you in Christ. You take, you take the topic of race, and we see this becoming idolatry from everything of white Christians in traditional white churches who think that white cultural expressions of their Christian faith are alone biblical and normal instead of cultural, and that non-white or non-traditional expressions of the Christian faith are wrong or not from the Bible or the way that you do church. We see the idolatry of race amongst Christian churches that refuse to try to reach their neighbors and majority diverse demographics in spite of the fact that their congregations are in diverse communities. And I've heard horror stories of this. Horror stories. I also have one amazing, beautiful testimony of it. I think I've shared this before, but huh, it was a gift from the Lord. When I was serving in student ministry, we would take mission trips to this area in Alabama and put on a vacation Bible school in this rural small church that didn't have enough leaders to put on VBS anymore. And as we did that, we reached a ton of people from their neighborhood and the church started growing from reaching their neighborhood. We did it for three years and the pastor called me before that summer mission trip. He's like, Pastor Eric, I hate saying this, but I wanna thank you, but we don't need your help anymore. We've actually grown to the point where we can be able to put on our own vacation Bible school. And I want to admit this to you. It's because we didn't want to reach the neighbors or try to reach the neighbors around us. As that area became lower economic and our people wasn't used to, know how to. And when your vacation Bible schools, because that's what we did. We just promoted and did uh, door hangers and everything like that around that neighborhood. But when we started to grow in there, we had a little bit of mind shift some repentance and mind shift at that church. And we're growing in that now. We don't need you. It was the best firing I've ever had. You should have seen when I was able to share our student ministry that went on those mission trips and tell them that. We don't have to go back because they're reaching people in their neighborhood. We also see the idolatry of race when Christians from different racial, racial postures reject what the Spirit says about walking in light and one's transformed racial identity in Christ. Or instead, they uncritically embrace anti-gospel messages that come from those outside of Christ, from their natural ethnic postures, with unbiblical conclusions and worldviews. In fact, Jarvis Williams, Associate Pref Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, and a preaching pastor at Sojourn Community Church, also the author of Removing the Stains of Racism in the SBC, 
and redemptive kingdom diversity says this, whether with the Republicans, the Democrats, Black Lives Matter, and or in any other organization or movement that overtly espouses ideas that contract the gospel, Christians often side with these groups based on which group most closely aligns with the majority positions within their natural ethnic postures without carefully and critically considering the messages that these groups adopt. And he says this on this topic of racial, again, idolatry. Christians should shatter all idols, including racial idols, with the supernatural power of the gospel as we live out our identities in Christ and community with people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who don't share our ethnic posture. That during these troubling times of racial division in this country, we're to reject the rhetoric, the methods, and the agendas of the present evil age, resist the lust of the flesh, one of which is idolatry, but walk in the spirit as you grieve the current state of our country, or else... We will not inherit the kingdom of God, as Galatians 5 says. And that we're not to retreat to our racial, economic, or privileged tribes, but retreat with our brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to the gospel tribe during times of racial tension and justice, that we are to retreat to Jesus and seek refuge in him as we weep, pray, work. It's so important that we know Believe and see. Not even in following, again, ideologies that's going to give us unbiblical conclusions, but see who we're rooted in in Christ. And that's not to say, again, that you don't have an identity in your ethnicity. Just like, it's not to say you don't have an identity in your gender. In your role as mom, husband, that you'd be proud of. But it does not take the place of Jesus Christ. And that when we find our tribe, all of a sudden our worldview and our actions going toward that over Christ. Again, we have to ask, is this becoming an idol? Last of all, within our culture, we see what's often said, especially, especially to teenagers, look within yourself. One of the top teenage Google searches is identity crisis. And if you Google search it right now, you're going to see majority of the articles pointing you and our teens to find it within yourself, to go on a journey of self-discovery, do things that make you happy, ignore judgment, and in short, turn our focus entirely toward ourselves. And according to this thinking, our identity is something only we can define and our emotions get the ruling vote on who we are and any objective standard of identity has then been torn away and we become our own less false functional image to identify ourselves with. <laughs> can't even imagine growing up amid such uncertainty. And this is the answer. Go within yourself even more. Is it any wonder teens are questioning who they are? And churches are not beyond, again, such cultural idols of identity. Entire churches have idolized these very things, getting their eyes off Jesus and his mission, while other Christians or churches have idolized other identities, like their roles, again, in family, what they've done for the Lord, maybe even their ministries, developing spiritual pride. Going back through that list again, how often we say, 
I am what I do. I am what I own. I am what I've done. I am what I desire. I am who I know or love. Or I am what I came from. And in a way, you can see how all the topics we cover even go back into this root idol of identity. These identity idols creeping into our very own hearts and churches. Remember what I said about the power of community and bonding in these things? How that deceitfully strengthens our belief that this is who we are? Well, that is actually for what's mentioned at the end of verse 28. We're not supposed to be bonded and united over those things, over the bond we have with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ over all other identities and communities. Look at the end of verse 28. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, our identity is ultimately not only in Christ, but then united in Christ. Listen, our relationship to God is personal. After all, you individually repent of your own sins and have your own saving faith. You are reading or should be reading and studying God's word and pray, praying in private also with others. Our, it says in scripture, individual names are written in the book of heaven and we are to rejoice as it says in scripture for that. But we lose our identity when we believe our relationship to God is only personal. When you say or believe that you feel closer to God when alone on the beach or hiking in the woods than your experience at church in community with other believers in discipleship relationships, we go against this truth that we are one in Christ and what God's word says about the body of Christ collectively working together for his purpose and mission. Back in her book, Identity Theft, Reclaiming the Truth of Who We Are in Christ, Megan Hill says, often people say and falsely believe, my personality just isn't suited to church, or I'm already part of a community of people with whom I have a lot in common, or I'm focusing on these other things like, like family or, 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 or this hobby. And at heart, she says, these things are fake IDs when searching the Bible because of how much it says we are connected at identity as God's family in him and within the church. That's why we have a faith family now that we should identify with more than anyone else in this world, as verse 28 says, because we're ultimately connected to a past faith family as we now inherit the same promise given to Abraham. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That identity, his church family and a body of Christ, both in past and now, gives us true community out of the false communities we seek identity in. That finding our identity apart from Christ, his people, and any other thing, it's ultimately identity theft by Satan. Dwight Schrute from the office was right when he said identity theft is not a joke. We start to believe the lies like, I must meet these certain standards to feel good about myself. I must be accepted and approved by others 
I'll be happy when I have enough stuff. I am what I am. And I've, what I've done in the past, what I'm struggling with, I cannot change it. I'm hopeless. I don't need Jesus or anyone else. Or like an animal, I just am what I desire. And no, there are consequences for all those false identities, sometimes unknown consequences, consequences that doesn't just hurt ourselves, but others around us. Just like there's consequences when your real identity is stolen in this life. Of course, it's a real threat these days with the internet. Remember years ago sharing the hurt my wife had felt and the long-lasting consequences from that happening to her. How those consequences scar and last longer than we think because it's wrapped up in something so personal as identity. Because that same way that Satan has stolen and lied about your identity, believing or living that out will affect more than just you. Church, it's why so many spouses and kids are sacrificed on the altar of a career, climbing up the ladder at work when you believe I'm identified in what I do. It's why many who love Jesus in the church all of a sudden abandoned their faith in church family when they just couldn't handle being alone or started dating someone they knew they shouldn't, an unbeliever, somebody that pulled them away because I am and who do I know, what I love. It's why people become a means to an end when feeling like you need to just get more stuff soon you don't care who you hurt, take advantage of, as long as you find a way to get more and have more. It's why we find things that not only harm ourselves, but others that love and care about us. When we are trying to numb that shame, we may feel about certain things in our past. We must know that all of those false identities are lies and that God created you for something else and you are viewed as someone else more stable, more fulfilling, more foundational in Christ. Two last things as we conclude. In order to truly believe this, and therefore live it out, first we must know our identity in Christ starts with the great I am before who you are. That understanding who we are in Christ is critically important, but beginning a theology of identity with who we are leaves out the most important piece of the story, who God is. Lists of who you are statements are filled with deep truth, but often little substance. You are loved, but those words hardly make a dent in love-hungry hearts if they don't understand who loves them first. You're chosen, but if you don't understand who you're chosen by, why you were chosen, you are redeemed. But those words mean nothing if we don't deeply comprehend what we're redeemed from and the greatness of our Redeemer's heart. Far too often, we open with the you are an identity and even the good things in Christ before the I am of who God is. After all, we're created in His image and then renewed and redeemed in that image as we discussed a year ago in the Mago Day series. And of course, once we do know who God is, we can understand and relish in what we receive in those true identities. And that's 
who we are. Conclude with this. It's our identity in Christ that makes us a child, a saint, and fruitful. We're a child beloved by God the Father. We're a saint redeemed by Jesus the Son. And we're fruitful as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. First on that topic that we hit upon in Galatians. With your new identity in Christ, you're not just a child of God, beloved by the Father. On this, J.I. Packer says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Again, this truly is key to our identity. And it makes sense of all the scriptures talking about childlike faith, not hindering a child to come to Jesus, the consequence of misleading a child into sin. We are children of God adopted into his family. And he is our perfect, providing, loving, and leading Heavenly Father who will never, ever abandon us, but is faithful to his promises of salvation to us. Oh, what an identity that gives us. Truly, there is no greater identity. A child of the all-powerful and loving God who never, ever lets us go. But not only that, you are now a saint, redeemed by the Son and fruitful, filled by the Holy Spirit. Conclude just reading this passage to see what your identity is in as redeemed and fruitful. Colossians 3, 5-15 shows us what this looks like. It's on the screens as well. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly is in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh, there's that word. How often those false identities lead to these things. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Here's your identity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, this sounds familiar. There is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And look at your identity. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, oh, there's the united in Christ, as the church in one body, and be thankful. That church is the new identity that you receive in Christ. Reread that, study that. Which one do you want to have an identity in? What was described the first several verses, or what you receive in Christ? As you are now a child beloved by God the Father, a saint redeemed by Jesus, and fruitful, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
with those type of characteristics, which one do you want to have an identity in? He is appealing for you to become who you, who you were created to be, to be what he originally created you for, to not be deceived by the false identities you're trying to be, but leaving you disappointed and hurt with, to receive that countercultural fruit that you put on with Christ. And listen, there's two responses. One, for those who do not know Christ and you're living in those false identities because you've been deceived and your real identity is sinner in need of a savior. And the response for you is this, repent and receive Christ. Repent and receive that new identity in Jesus. Be reconciled to him. Embrace and become what God created you for. And confessing and admitting, I'm a sinner. I see how it's living out through all these false ways. But Jesus, you are that Savior. You took that sin upon yourself when you died on the cross for me. You rose from the grave. And I give you my heart and life. Receive him. And for those who have done that or will do that, it is now setting up rhythms and routines. Rhythms and routines to remind you who God is as you were created in him. Studying and believing his attributes and characteristics. Then figure out who you are in Christ and all the different identities with that. How you can live that out. It's being careful of places and ideologies of false identity. It's living in continual community rooted in the right identity. And it's finding ways Again, to continue to know, believe the truth of who you are and how to live that out. Setting up rhythms and routines to live out who you were created to be. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Go ahead and spend just a moment talking with the Lord. Some of that may be shattering certain idols. Some of that may be talking to the Lord, committing to certain rhythm routines, believing who he is, who you are. Some of this may be receiving Christ for the very first time. For others, maybe a commitment to the community and the body of Christ that he's given you as you're bonded in one with that body. Go ahead and talk to the Lord, whatever he's leading. And we'll pray and we'll sing about who we are as a child. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to be deceived into thinking that we are what we do, what we desire, who we know, what we love, even as Christians to keep on getting into those patterns of thoughts and lifestyle. We thank you for revealing and showing us that in Christ and in Christ alone can we have our true fulfilling identity. Oh, what a foundation it is. For all of the things, let us live that out. Let us share that with others. Let us be united as a body in it. As we sing it, being a child of you, redeemed by your son, fruitful. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus.